My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Hilder. Welcome back. So glad to have you here with us and glad to have you tuned in for a conversation we taped with this week's guest, Buck Meek. You know Buck as one of the members of Big Thief, his critically acclaimed indie rock band, and solo albums like this year's Haunted Mountain. Full of near-death experiences and tender but insistent roots-inspired songwriting, it's a record that finds inspiration in the mysterious environments of Mount Shasta, long a site of high strangeness. Cut live to two-inch tape, it's a personal and open-hearted record, and I'm so glad to welcome Buck for a conversation that is also personal and open-hearted. We hang out and discuss a lot of stuff. Bob Dylan, uh, namely, not so much his work with Bob Dylan, thanks to one of those pesky NDAs, and what I would give to check out Bob Dylan's NDA agreement. Uh, We also discuss the autonomy-preserving creative practices of Big Thief, and his work with fellow Texan Jolie Holland, who has her own Haunted Mountain album out. Uh, We'll explain that as we go. Uh, Ultimately, this conversation with Buck really comes down on the idea of reciprocity and really reflecting on what reciprocity means and what it means to care for others and to uh, put things out into the world knowing that they will help somebody. Uh, Anyway, I really enjoyed this conversation with Buck, and I am so excited to share it with you. But on the topic of reciprocity, of course, we will take this moment to plug Aquarium Drunkard's Patreon page. Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions is brought to you by our Patreon community. If you're listening now and you're not shipping in at the Patreon, that's okay. We certainly understand. We like the idea of this podcast being out there for everybody. But you should know that folks are uh, pledging a couple bucks each month to help us pay contributors and keep this podcast rolling and all of the other things that do require funds. The media ecosystem, as it has been discussed a lot over these last couple of weeks, we try not to focus in on, you know, the timely, this is what's happening this week in the music industry thing here at Aquarium Drunkard, but it's no surprise or shock to anybody, I'm sure, that it's kind of a rough time for music publications that are independent that are focused on the passion of their contributors that's what we try to build with aquarium drunkard and if that means something to you one of the best ways that you can support us is by heading over to the patreon page and chipping in we appreciate that if you are looking for another way to support this podcast in particular let me encourage you to head over to apple music or apple podcasts or whatever it is however you get there Uh, leave a five-star review for this podcast Uh, leave a nice little comment something like that that'll help folks find it and of course you can always just forego all of that digital weirdness and just forward a link to somebody who you think might enjoy conversation like the one you're just about to hear with buck meek so i'll let the tape roll now thanks so much for being here with us and thanks to buck for joining us on aquarium drunkard transmissions said you made 
thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on Transmissions. We're really glad to have you. No doubt. Before we get too far into stuff, I, I have to ask you, because I've just been so curious about it ever since it happened, and I recently picked up the LP version of Bob Dylan's Shadow Kingdom, and uh, I'm sure you've been asked about it. How, how much does does Bob Dylan have like a serious NDA you have to sign or anything like that? He does. I've said this before, but I, I swore to a very intimidating cowboy that I wouldn't speak a word of the, the matter. Wait, when you say an intimidating cowboy, do you really mean there was a cowboy who presented you with illegal documents, or is this a Mulholland Drive uh, situation? I really mean it. <laughs> That's really fantastic. Well, <laughs> you know, to the degree that you, you can or can't talk about it, I completely understand. But, um, boy, it was really exciting seeing that movie were you able to did you attend like a viewing party or anything when it dropped or or have any special way of celebrating i watched it at home i didn't i don't think there was a viewing party that i knew of but i i did really enjoy watching it at home it must have been strange because i have to imagine that you did your part and then you just were going to be watching the movie like the rest of us right like you didn't necessarily know what exactly was going to happen i had no idea yeah that's exciting. That's exciting. And it was awesome to see Shazad Ismaili in there, who is just somebody who has a tendency of popping up in the most interesting places. Had you, do you know, had you known Shazad through other, other things? I had known Shazad for many years, actually. I, he has a studio in New York City called Figure Eight that he mm-hmm. built maybe in 2014 or something like that, maybe 15 or 16. And I actually lived above Figure Eight. Um, and I've done many sessions there with and without Shazad. And um, yeah, I, he's pretty deep in the community that I came up in in New York City. Yeah, that's awesome. I just recently saw him with VJ Eiler and uh, a roof off top. Uh, oh, yeah. Holy shit. What an yeah. incredible performance. I'm sure. Yeah, that record is so beautiful. Yeah, Shazad is really an enigmatic musician. He's he's incredible. One of he's the most a- intuitive players I've ever I've ever played with. That's what I hear every time I speak with somebody who has worked with him. And when we had him on this show, he he was talking about driving his car while playing guitar. He was like driving with his feet while playing guitar and filming it or something. And I was like, my God, this dude is like, he's in another, he's on another level. And it was so exciting talking with him. And so to see folks like you guys, you know, who I, whose work I've paid attention to for a while, um, popping up in that movie was was really fascinating. It was really a, is an incredible thing. I have to give all the credit to my friend Alex Summers, um, a great a great composer and musician, um, film composer primarily, but also has a couple of his own solo records out in the world. Um, he he was the musical director that Alma Alma Harrell brought into the project, and Alex is who put together that band. No, that's so cool. That's so yeah. cool. Were you had when the I remember uh when Rough and Rowdy Ways dropped during the pandemic, it felt like a uh, like a really monumental moment. It was a record that I feel like everybody paid attention to, uh or at least those who you know care about Bob Dylan. Was that an important release for you? Did you did you enjoy that one when it when it came out or did you engage oh, with yeah. it at all? I did. That record blew my mind. Key West is one of my favorite Bob Dylan songs of all time. And you, yes, yeah, the songs on the record. And to hear that band and to hear Blake's comp- contributions and yeah, and just to hear Sound City, I think that the sound of that studio to me is like is so iconic. I feel like that just the sound of a snare in that room uh, is kind of imprinted in my mind from you know so many great records and um, it was yeah really special to hear that room and that band. And I love hearing Charlie Sexton and Blake play together and everybody that they brought in really just like a mind-blowing record and i just really struggle to think of somebody who has kept it as engaged as dylan has you know Definitely. for as long as he has I, I think of lou reed and david bowie as examples of guys who were going making pretty mind-blowing and challenging work right up until the end but definitely but yeah rough- i will say one thing i will say about just Bob Dylan is I, I've never met anyone who works harder and has more attention to detail than him in my life. Yeah. 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 That must be key to the, to the process. A song like murder most foul. I mean, it, that felt like it was its own album 
in some ways I almost feel like Bob Dylan thinks of it that way because Rough and Rowdy Ways has like there's the cover and then on the back there's the I don't know the CD version I got at least the back cover is just the picture of JFK and it says murder yeah. most foul so I almost feel like it's like a double album in disguise or something who knows uh but yeah, mind blowing, mind blowing record, and so cool that you got to be a part of that. But yeah, congrats on on your most recent release, Haunted Mountain. I've really, really enjoyed spending my time with it. It's uh, it's it, you really knocked it out of the park with this one. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Yeah, the title track was, uh, as if I if I understand it right, it was sort of inspired by Mount Shasta. Have you have you spent time out there? I have spent some time out there. My father lived there for many years before I was born. That's interesting. That's interesting. So did you grow up visiting it as a kid? I actually never visited it as a kid. I heard a lot of stories about Mount Shasta. My dad had a lot of near-death experiences up there and some, some wild ghost stories and, um, and well, that... just so much, so much, yeah, so much love for that mountain, I think. Um, my, I grew up in Houston, Texas, but, um, but the song was actually born from Jolie Holland. Uh, she wrote the first verse in the chorus as kind of a love song to Mount Shasta. Um, and when she showed me that those first two verses and a chorus at a song circle that she was hosting in LA a couple of years ago, I just like, I couldn't get out of my head for like a year. And then I asked her if she had finished it and she, she hadn't, she asked me to, to, to finish it. And so I wrote that third verse. Um, so it felt like we shared a kinship for this mountain. Um, but it was her idea. That's really fantastic. Um, for one, the mountain itself, as you alluded with your dad's stories, well, you mentioned some near-death experiences. None of those, were any of those near-death experiences paranormal-related, or were, were the near-death things and the paranormal things individual sort of experiences? I think the near-death experiences from Shasta that my dad told me about were not particularly <laughs> paranormal. Um, he had some deep experiences up there. Like Actually, my name, Buck, came from an experience that he had um at fowler falls on the side of mount shasta he was he was leaving shasta to go to houston to work on a house for his brother um and the night before he left he was he he went to his favorite spot on fowler falls and he was just hanging out it was super foggy and then on his way back to the jeep this gigantic like mountain deer came out of the fog and was kind of snorting at him and kind of aggressive and it was this kind of standoff with this deer that was pretty intimidating those big mountain deer up there and um and then he realized that the deer was protecting his his young and his his lady and and the deer walked him back to his jeep like a hundred yards and he had this kind of up until that point he had he had told himself that he wasn't going to have kids and his brother was in vietnam and he was pretty fed up with the world and he was living up there um he was a woodworker at the time and just kind of hiding out and after that experience I think it kind of softened him and he, he, he went to Houston and worked in this house and he met my mother, uh, that month actually, and never, never got back to Shasta. So wow. that's like where my name comes from. And, um, so not necessarily paranormal, but definitely a somewhat spiritual experience, I suppose. It's funny though. Cause while you were telling that story, I mean, I found myself just sort of mentally like, okay, so swap out deer with like a ghost or whatever here, you know what oh. I mean? And it's like, it's easy to do Mount Shasta having this sort of mythic lore and it's like long been a place that people associate with, with strangeness. Um, so that's awesome that, that, that uh, Jolie was writing about it and that you went and found sort of your own resonance with it, obviously it being a, a sort of ancestral place for you in some ways. I also loved that, that, Jolie named her new album, her latest album, Haunted Mountain as well. And I thought this was, this is great. I kind of feel like we're living in this moment where album titles, project names, all of this stuff, it's starting to feel less and less uh, proprietary in some sense. I don't know if that resonates with you at all, but did it feel exciting or strange or how did it feel having, uh, you know, knowing that these two records are out there sharing a name, sharing some common uh, core maybe, but also existing completely as their own things. How did that feel for you? It felt like a blood pact with Jolie. <laughs> it felt like a bond. Um, we wrote five of the songs 
from Haunted Five Five songs from my version of Haunted Mountain um, <laughs> together. In, in different with different methods uh there was a couple of songs that she sent me kind of half finished with a melody and a form roughed out that i helped finish and there was a couple of songs that i had <clears throat> you know i had started maybe halfway or more and sent her to finish and then there was one that we kind of wrote together from scratch so but nonetheless we um yeah we we wrote a lot together for this album and so it felt natural and empowering to to call our albums haunted mountain together yeah that's really interesting when did you first cross paths the two of you you and, and jolie holland who's obviously uh, been around for a long time and made incredible music all along the way when did you first encounter her stuff yeah jolie's been a really a hero of mine since i was a teenager i, I heard her song sasha on ktx when i was maybe 15 or 16 years old and uh that song blew my mind definitely impacted me uh inspired me to be you know to become a songwriter i think and she was one of my heroes for a long time growing up and then when i moved to new york city in 2012 she had posted on facebook that she was teaching songwriting lessons out of her apartment and so i went to her apartment for a songwriting lesson and um i just took one lesson from her um and i remember i asked her for advice about writing writer's block and she just told me to chain myself to the piano and then i had a song that had two verses and a chorus called sam bridges and i was insecure that it wasn't long enough and maybe unfinished and i sang it to her and asked her for advice on where it could go and she told me it was she's like just call it finished it's done so there was this kind of like sage advice she gave me and um that felt like enough um so that was the only lesson i ever took from her but we we became friends and um we hadn't written together actually until this album. We but we've played many shows together over the years, and she hosts a song circle at her spot here in LA that I've been to a lot, and um, so we've become really close friends. But we didn't start writing together until that um, until she sent me Haunted Mountain to, to help finish. Wow! So you both had you you'd taken that lesson from her in New York though, and now you attend her her songwriting circle in LA. So you got two cities in common too. Yeah, we both moved to LA around the same time. Yeah, that's really fantastic. It's yeah. it's great. I mean, the the process of obviously in the case of somebody like Jolie Holland, who is a hero of yours, you know, the process of working with somebody who's who's songs already mean something to you is probably very exciting but i can also imagine it's one of those situations that sometimes it doesn't work out the way you think it will but it seems like in this case the two of you were were pretty simpatico i mean what 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 is a what are you looking for in a in a songwriting partner you know um that not specific to her but when 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 that seems to be the way to go how does a song basically tell you it needs somebody else in the mix, uh, at least as you've experienced it? Well, I think it's different for every song, but for instance, the song Lullabies on, on Haunted Mountain is kind of a <clears throat> a little miniature epic about a mother and son, starting with the birth, um, with a difficult birth, and then the the infancy and the childhood in, into adolescence and adulthood of this, this child and kind of the, the, a little bit of the hero's journey there. And, um, but nonetheless, I, I wrote most of the song, but I felt like I just simply lacked the perspective of a mother or of a one, you know, of the feminine sure. perspective. Um, and so that was one of the incentives for, for inviting her into that. Um, and, um, otherwise, yeah, I think, <laughs> I've always seen Jolie as someone who has like a really deep understanding of, of mysticism and um, just efficiency of language and, and poetry. She, she's like an encyclopedia of, of like folk mysticism and folk music. And um, so I think the songs that maybe were, were longing for some element of mysticism. I, I often brought, brought Jolie into that and um, yeah. That's really fascinating. I think about how, you know, we, we, we've we already touched on Mount Shasta, and if we're talking about mysticism, it's definitely some sort of haunted place, you know, or uh, 
a place where it feels like there's um, something more at work than what is uh, on the surface. And I think about how, you know, like UFOs uh, and uh, I think about the line that you guys wrote about going to see a necromancer on this record, you know, it's like that sort of uh, that sort of mystic language, that sort of occult or far out language, it seems to be something that you are are drawn to to some degree. And I wonder what your own per- personal experience with that kind of stuff is is like. I mean, are you often drawing on weird things that you've seen, or you know, is there a fictionalized element of it, or some of both? Uh, how does that how does that work for you? And where does your interest in that area sort of center? I've had my handful of of uh, mystical experiences or ghost experiences, et cetera. But I think the thing that I'm most interested in is just observing how how humans have always and will always uh, mythologize their own experiences, maybe yeah. as as an as a, an attempt to transcend the mortal coil, and um, in 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 every form with with religion and storytelling and song and um, and etc and i think simultaneously i've also spent a lot of time in in nature i really value spending time out in the woods and spend a lot of time camping and um a lot of time in the ocean and and i think there's there's a in in my experience there's a there's a natural um mysticism to nature of course there's there's so much that we don't understand um that that is actually yeah yeah not not even paranormal it's just it's just hyper real but maybe beyond our our you know perception yeah yeah that's so funny because that's really what the term supernatural actually originally meant was hyper natural you know or like extra real in a certain way that i think is so funny that when so when you say hyper hypernatural or hyper real you know that's really interesting to me because i think those experiences that make us feel that there's something out there bigger than ourselves when we're doing that mythologizing it's it's nice to have that in the um sort of tool kit you know what i mean this understanding that we are in a a big interconnected thing and i think being in nature definitely definitely brings that up i you know I was thinking about how this notion of mountains runs through. I mean, the the last big thief album also had a mountain in the title, you know, and sure. uh, and so I think that notion of, of of a mountain, and I'm drawn to the image of mountains and and sort of these sort of towering things. But I really do think that that's part of what you're talking about. Maybe is just that sense of something much bigger than you, and this sense of uh, of a time geologic time that's much vaster than our heads are able to wrap around you know what i mean yeah for sure and to bring it back to the title again like when when jolie first sent me the song haunted mountain the first couple verses of haunted mountain um she she would always kind of send me like a prompt along with the lyrics or or a uh like a moral and she she said that you know this song is a love song from mount shasta but what i'm really trying to talk about is is reciprocity Uh and reciprocity with nature and um and I, I listened to those first two verses, you know, about um, essentially like falling in love with this mountain and feeling this this power beyond yourself and this, you know, um, and I, I felt like the only thing I can contribute was maybe the humbling, you know, like the 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 the, the character who who left the valley to live on the mountain and um, was kind of idealizing this environment as their as their sacred place, um, then falling into the, into the well, like falling into the, the falls, into this like fountain of youth and almost drowning in the falls and being swept up in the eddy of the river and like drifting a mile downstream and, and maybe like being humbled by that power that they're drawing from, at which point they, they, they can actually like develop a fair relationship. Um, and so I think the song Haunted Mountain and then also the title as like, um, maybe could, could can serve as as like a, a moral as uh, for the album as a whole. Now, I can't speak for Jolie's album as a whole, but at least for mine, as far as like reciprocity with nature in the case of Haunted Mountain, um, but also reciprocity in, in love. 
Yeah. It feels to me like, I mean, you talked a lot in the interviews about this album, about how you were, it sort of required you to be unafraid to, to sing about love in a way that was maybe, I don't want to say that you hadn't written love songs before. I'm sure in some sense they're all love songs, but it really seems like that was something you were, it seems like that's something you wanted to focus in on with this record and maybe be a little bit more, I mean, we talked about you being vulnerable in like a new role as a, as a, um, producer. I have to imagine that some of these songs required a little bit of new vulnerability, even as a songwriter. Does that feel fair to you? Oh, definitely. And yeah, I think again, it comes back to reciprocity in, in regards to producing, for instance, like having the, the, the empathy and the patience to really like care for the art, for the artist's vision and expectations while simultaneously yeah. like honoring your own you know which i feel like in any collaboration or any any human relationship there's this dance between listening and caring for the other and empathizing with the other while also like honoring your own truth and, and your own you know and confidently speaking um for, for yourself and, and trying to you know and i feel like a, a healthy relationship has both and and there's a flux of course but um i I wanted to like, I wanted to step into the, to the love song with this record to some degree, but I also wanted to talk about like the work that's required in love, like to get in there with songs like Secret Side, um, the, you know, the humility that's required to actually maintain a loving relationship and just admitting to yourself that like, you'll never fully understand another person. And, right. um, you know, that, yeah. 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 No, I know. What you, I, I, that, that's, that's, that's really I think that because that's something when you you did an interview with uh, Charlie Ruddle for Aquarium Drunkard uh, a few years back, you're talking right. about about two saviors, and and when you were asked a little bit about that one, I think you said something about how well I'll just quote you. You said that you were thinking uh, something about the the conflicts that arise in the pursuit of transcendence and the compromises that are required. So I feel like that thing you're talking about mm. is maybe a, a theme that you're, you've been parsing out, right? Which is that it, when we talk about these things, when we talk about love, I think that's the name of a Raymond Carver story, right? What we talk about when we talk about love. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, I, I, I often love songs in the pop sense are focused on the sort of adoration or the, the momentary bliss of something, yeah. you know, and it seems like you're interested in maybe pushing a little bit deeper than just that. Right. And writing love songs about the work of love, you know, which is Definitely. significant and not That's, easy. Yeah. Thanks for, yeah. Thanks for seeing that. Cause, cause I think that, you know, we, we all like, we all have that impulse, uh, to, to long for for the the joy and the adoration and the you know that but i feel like that's uh in order to really like find that sustainably there's so much work required of us but then i think that the reward the reward is is much deeper you know and yeah. uh yeah so i i guess i want to write about that that's true i think that's i think it's a really worthwhile thing to write about um especially now when it's very difficult sometimes to um i guess i'm thinking about online existence or anything like yeah. that right it, it it's it feels difficult sometimes to uh to be vulnerable in the way that something like love requires and i mean love not just in the romantic sense right yeah me but too. In, like, yeah i'm not yeah i'm not exactly like beyond romantic also the again like the love of a mother the love of a friend like in songs like where you're coming from or the love of a mountain or like the reciprocal you know relationship with with nature and um i feel like there's there's so much exploitation in love um that we 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 we, we fall into you know and i think that it's 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 innocent too there's there's like an innocence to that that first impulse sometimes um but yeah i think that when you really start to peel the layers back and and work towards something more reciprocal that's like yeah yeah, reciprocal versus transactional maybe is exactly. a way to think about. Interconnected, a, 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 symbio a symbiosis or something.
Putting your music up online is not always the easiest thing in the world to figure out, but DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and, as an artist, you keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, all the major streaming services. You can use it to edit your lyrics and your song credits. So important in the internet age to let people know the kind of people you're collaborating with. And uh, DistroKid makes that easy. You can also see all your stats from the streamers and, of course, add a credit card to purchase album extras. The DistroKid app is available now on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. You know, there's another co-write on the album that I was just so jazzed to talk with you about. In this case, it's a, a posthumous uh, co-write where you wrote n- new music and melodies to, well, I believe you wrote the melodies as well to The Rainbow, right? Which That's features true. lyrics that Judy Sill wrote. Um that's true. I am just beyond a fan of Judy Sill. I think uh, that yeah. <laughs> when we're talking about uh, a songwriter who approaches a topic like love in a truly multifaceted and often layered and symbolic manner, Judy's on the top of the list as far oh, as I'm yeah. concerned. No um, doubt. Yeah. When did when did you first get into her work? I first heard her in maybe 2014 adrian had learned the kiss uh Mm. the song of hers and yeah that's when i first first found her no that's so fantastic i feel like over the uh over the course of the pandemic Haley williams from paramore uh did a a cover of the song loping along through the cosmos and that turned Mm. a bunch of people onto her her work which so it's so cool when people sing her songs but you were faced with a pretty challenge a pretty challenging task, I imagine, which is that you were giving, given Judy's notebooks in conjunction with, was it in conjunction with the folks who made the Lost Angel documentary? It was, yes. The The directors uh, sent me some of her journal entries to put to music. Well, it's a fantastic documentary. I got a chance to see it earlier this year, and I can't wait for it to receive a sort of more wide, uh, a, a, a wider release at some point but um what was that how did that process have you have you ever done anything like that set somebody else's words in that manner to to a song i'd never done anything like that before no um and it was yeah it was wild it was it was intimidating and yeah it was an honor um but yeah they had provided maybe like 20 pages of her journal some photocopies of her her journal me and asked me if I would be interested in putting any of the unfinished lyrics to music. There was a few songs with sheet music, but most of it was just lyric. And um, so the it was out of order, but the 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 one that hit me the hardest was this um, very unfinished rough song that was dated just a few weeks before she passed away and dedicated to her ex boyfriend and his daughter, who she was very close with. And it was unstructured. There was a lot of just like rhyme schemes mapped out on the page and um, some some repetitions with slight variations of, of the verses. And I had to kind of rearrange the form to some degree to fit a song form. And I wrote a melody and chords. But um, yeah, it was wild. But I tried to honor her, her words as closely as I can, with as closely as I could without adding any words, really. I feel like you really picked up on the sort of... Um very subtle and careful way that Judy would use chord inflections to underscore certain lyrics. You know, I listened to the song and, and I mean, this as a compliment. It didn't sound fully like a Judy Sill song to me. You know, it's not, it it didn't sound like you sat down and said, all right, now I'm going to write a style in the, a song in the style of Judy Sill. Um, No doubt which I have to imagine is a tempting thing for somebody. You know, I'm sure that that idea um, could be followed through to some level of success or whatever. But what you did was instead much more, again, going deeper than the surface on this situation. And I think really honoring Judy's spirit a lot more. I think that, first off, I mean, there's a lyric in it. 
<laughs> that I can't get over. It's when a moment of wonder fills you with wonder. And on um, on paper, you think, okay, there's a lot of wonder in that, you know? Um, yeah. But it works so perfectly. And uh, her use of repetition and use of repe repeating phrases. And then she follows it a moment above and below, which, of course, I think ties into that hermetic dictum or whatever, right? As above, so below. And I think that Judy is just really one of the best articulators of how, you know, joy and sadness and moments of levity and moments of really solemn weight, you know, that they don't cancel each other out and it's not a dualistic thing where it's one or the other. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that that's something that if, 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 if I were pressed to distill what makes her such a powerful songwriter to somebody else, I think that's how I would put it. You know what I mean? Is yeah, that she, I love that. She makes space for all the stuff. And I feel like yeah. you got, you and also in Big Thief, uh, I'm seeing, I, I feel like there's a kinship there too, right? Like yeah. that, it, that you can explore things. You can explore more than one thing at a time, and you can explore more than one feeling at a time, you know? Definitely. Yeah, I've always felt that in Judy's songwriting, that those those paradoxes or, the you know, those polarities yeah, actually yeah. Give, they, they give each other meaning, you know? Like, the, the sorrow gives the, gives the joy more meaning and vice versa. And, and together, they, they create this powerful arc in storytelling for sure you know in in conveying some some form of like emotional impact um over the course of a song you know she she can move you through so many the, the whole process of emotion th through you know through a whole grieving process and then into into transcendence and i agree that like in it, more than a lot of songwriters in that in that world from from that era I feel like she has control of harmony in a way that really empowers the lyrics and, and the, the arc yeah. of the story. And she really understands almost to like the degree of, or to the degree of like the great American songwriters like Berlin or, or, you know, the, the, to the degree of like an operatic writer or, a, you know, a, a great classical composer. She really understands the impact of harmony and melody on, on the tension in, in a story, you know, and uh, the tension and release, of course. Um, and is constantly using those devices in really subtle ways, not, not just happy to sad, but like really shaded, subtle ways, um, in, in intertwined with her, her lyrical content. And so I tried to just focus on that, but write the song in my own way, you know? Yeah. Um, but at least honor that device, you know? Yeah, for sure. And I think you did a great job. And I, I mean, I think you're right. Like in a way she's, she's like got as much in common with like Gershwin or somebody, you yeah, know, like exactly. she, and she, and she, but I mean, and that's the thing that is so mind blowing to me about her work is that she knew it. She wasn't like, yeah. I mean, she knew what she was doing and she understood the powerful depth of it. And then also as so many are, was just so disappointed that she had to like go out and open for rock bands, you know, or like, uh, she wanted to create like some kind of future church music, I feel like, but, a a cooler church, I think, than the one that we're most often presented, you know? So I feel like, um, yeah, I think that, you know, she's one of those, she only put out two records in her lifetime, obviously, um, but even all the posthumous stuff that's come out has all been pretty mind-blowing, including yeah. this piece that you've now got to contribute to her story, which is oh. really fascinating. Thank um, you. Well, yeah, so I wanted to ask you a little bit about how, you know, I think you spent some time, I'm in Arizona, and uh, I was curious a little bit about the time you spent out here recording Dragon New Warm Mountain, I Believe in You, because you guys were oh, all yeah. over the place, right? You were in you were in Massachusetts, New York, out in Topanga in California, you were in Colorado, and then you also worked in, in Tucson. First off, that's a lot of recording, right? Was that fun? Oh, it was so much fun. But we actually didn't, I mean, we recorded probably a total of maybe a month and a half or something. A lot of that time was spent writing and arranging and cooking meals together and spending time together as friends. Um, 
And we moved through the recording process pretty quickly, although we did record like 45 songs for that album, which yeah. were then boiled down to 20. But, you know, we didn't really spend more than a few hours on each song, um, I would say. Wow, that's cool. And, yeah, we, we recorded at um, the, the fourth of the fourth session was at our friend Scott McMicken of the band Dr. Dog's Place. He had a studio out in Tucson, um, this really cool little eight track analog studio. And so we recorded a lot of the like Spud Infinity and a lot of those more like country leaning songs at that session. That's really cool. Had you spent much time out here in Arizona before that? I've passed through so many times on my, my way from Texas to California because I grew up sure. in Texas. Um, I always try to jump off the highway and visit the, you know, the petrified forest and the visit the hot springs and, um, the Guaro park. And I climbed up the, what is it? Picacho, Picacho peak, Picacho peak between Tucson and Phoenix. Yeah. Yeah. Most of my experience in Arizona has been like, you know, just having driven across the country and and needing a few hours to (laughs) just wind down in nature and, um, I actually made it down to Bisbee one time. That that was really cool. That beautiful. drive down to Bisbee is super beautiful. Beautiful um, place, yeah. I yeah. haven't spent much time in northern Arizona yet, but I'm really looking forward to getting into that region more because driving through, it looks so beautiful. I've never been to Sedona or any of those areas. but Oh, you got so much Arizona traveling yeah. ahead of you. Um, I highly recommend all of it. Yeah, Picacho Peak will kind of kick your ass. It's pretty... Yeah, uh... it's a bad one. For sure, <laughs> it it absolutely is tougher than than you think. But boy, yeah, uh, I love Arizona. Though. I'm really I've spent more time in New Mexico just because it was a little closer to Texas growing up. I spent sure. a lot of time in, in Taos and Santa Fe, and um, but I love the desert. There's so much subtlety and and just minuscule like beauty in the desert. I love how like how resilient everything is, and yeah, it's so beautiful there. Yeah, no, completely, completely agree. The nature out here is really something. And, you know, the record, you know, and and Big Thief, something that really struck me, I was really taken by, so I kind of went down a rabbit hole with the song Little Things, and I found, um, this is funny, I found a thread on Reddit where people were comparing it to a Dave Matthews Band song. Um, And then I was poking around on YouTube and I saw people saying that it sounded like uh, Fleetwood Mac. And then elsewhere on YouTube, somebody said it sounds like Pat Metheny. And I was like, this is so fascinating because here is a band that, like, imagine if you were tasked to imagine the song that yeah. that those people are describing. I don't know what would come out, you know, but... Yeah. I, I wonder what are have you guys have you have you personally received sort of any memorable weird you know who you guys sound like insert blank has that ever happened to you let's see i'm trying to think you know particular artists i'm having a hard time recalling particular artists that we've been referred to but um a term that i've always loved that my friend i think it's robbie jeffers who who called us doom folk i like doom folk as a, as a tag doom folk is is really is is really cool um you know i feel like there's something so refreshing and exciting about a band like big thief because you guys do defy easy categorization you know what i mean like uh and i know that's not like a thing where you guys sat down and you said okay what's our goal with this band and somebody wrote down defy easy categorization or whatever but um but I have to imagine that to some degree that is something that that is attractive to you guys is sort of subverting what people think might uh, be happening for the sake of those Redditors. I mean, has have the words Dave Matthews Band ever come up in a Big Thief session or uh, songwriting practice or rehearsal? No, okay. I think maybe Adrienne listened to some Dave Matthews Band as a teenager. She definitely listened to Pat Metheny. Pat Metheny was one of her heroes growing up. Um a lot of those guitar players like Michael Hedges, Pat Metheny, I think were some of her big influences for, you know, a lot of that open tuning. So um, cool. Co- complex finger picking and, it, you know, uh, odd time signature stuff that she, that she kind of weaves into our music a lot. Um, but, yeah, I think that I feel like that's maybe the nature of a real band. I mean, if, if you really, to go back to Reciprocity, Big Thief is a band that has always um, collaborated with, you know, kind of like this autonomous democracy, whatever you want to call it, like 
all four members have very different backgrounds in music and and there's no hierarchy creatively of course adrian brings the seed of the song a lot of the time but as far as the arrangement um and the writing of parts and that that's uh everyone is just putting their their vision on the table and um everyone has total freedom you know and i think that i can think of a lot of bands that might defy definition who you know function that way like you know radiohead etc um so that's really yeah that's fascinating so does that make it you know um I have to imagine that there must be some sort of intrinsic trust at the core of the whole thing, if that's going to be the case, right? Because if a band... No doubt. It takes a lot of work. It's a really long process to get to the point where you can trust each other in in that creative process and and to even trust yourself. You have to work through so much ego and so much self, you know, self criticism and criticism of each other and resentment of each other's, you know, there, there's everything that comes up in any human relationship comes up in a band. Um, and not to mention you're living together 24 hours a day, but even just in the studio or in the creative process, you have to like, you have to work through a lot in, in our, in our case, a lot through conversation. Um, we put our guitars down and we, we have to talk through some of this stuff, you know? Um, and we'll often talk for four hours and then go in and, it'll only take a few minutes to actually come up with something. Um, but yeah, I think it's a testament yeah. to that. But, but those four hours are part of the thing. They're part exactly. of, it, of, it, of it being created, which it's so, so easy to, uh, to bypass that or to not think about that. You know, I think when you put yeah. a record on because you're like, yeah, they just got together and they made the a record. It's I'm sure yeah. it was fun, you know, but like the For actual sure. ins and outs of a band. And it's, it's funny how much of our conversation has ended up focusing on relationships, you know, yeah. but I think that that's a really fascinating and exciting place to end up in a conversation because I think maybe, uh, without trying to be all encompassing, I feel like people are thinking a lot about relationships right now. I mean, I guess we probably always are, but we're also in a strange position of these last few years have been so strained and so different and weird to navigate that people are finding themselves around each other again, and they're not sure how to be relational to each other, you know? And, uh, and I mean that in a, a very sympathetic way because I think everybody's struggling with it to, to some degree, right? You know, but um, yeah. but I think that that notion of reciprocity that you keep bringing up is is really important, and I think it's one of, I think that uh, right now, if music can help us be more generous, I think that is a, that's a really good thing, you know, and I think we really need it right now, and. Uh, and I feel like it's so easy for people to focus on all of the things that are going wrong in the world and look at, you know, rock music or records and be like, what does any of this mean? But somehow you do have to believe it means something, you know, because it's part of everything else meaning something, at least for me. And so when I hear you talk about all this stuff, I think it really, uh, it feels really inspiring to think about what it means to be in partnership with somebody, you know, and yeah. you and you're coming at yeah at it from such a such a unique angle with this sort of autonomous band, and then your own project, and now yeah. other artists. It's it's just been really fascinating to hear you chat about all this stuff. Thanks for saying that. Yeah, you know, like when you when you hear a recording of a band, you you know you hear the the, the final, you you hear the arrival of so much work, and I would hope at least that all of the work, all of the again like reciprocity all of the humility all of the all of the ego and 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 relinquishing the ego that's gone into the process of finally arriving at that recording i would hope that that's all contained within the recording that whole like the power of that whole process is somehow like tr transferred to the listener somehow you know I, I believe that yeah i think i do too i definitely do and i think that there's a yeah, we're getting far enough out there, I think. But um yeah, I think sure. I think I think there's a psychic dimension to it, you know? And I yeah. think that um uh, I think in order for a band to really lock, in my opinion, like when when something sounds good to me, I think it's 
to some degree, probably, and, and being a musician and knowing how it goes in the studio, no, having gone through that process so many times, usually when it locks, it's it's the point at which everyone is actually uh, in a healthy relationship with each other in the room. You know, when they've, because, you know, at first, when you step into a creative process as a band member, I think to some degree, your, your initial impulse is wanting everyone to be an avatar for your vision, to some degree, you know, um, even the best of us. Uh, and And then you have to kind of peel those layers back and slowly, like, open yourself up to other people's uh other people's vision at least of, of course there's things that we're open to when we step in but there's we're always holding something way down there this diamond in our mind that's like oh, i'm right about this one you know i know right. that this this one thing like i know for sure it's right and it's not always right you know um and somehow like if you can go through the process and trust each other you, you arrive in the middle and then it locks and then you get to take you know and and that is what people hear and so i think it's in there yeah, yeah. Well, Buck, it's been beyond uh, a thrill hanging out with you and getting into this stuff and uh, exploring some territory that I, I don't get to explore even as often as I hope. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. And, no doubt. Yeah, thanks so much for doing it, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll talk again, I'm sure. Hell yeah, thanks for listening so closely and asking such thoughtful questions. It means a lot. Thanks for being with us once again. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I produce, write, and host the show. Transmissions is edited by Andrew Horton. Our music comes from Frank Maston, drawn from his incredible discography of gorgeous library music. You can find more by visiting maston.bandcamp.com. That's M-A-S-T-O-N.bandcamp.com. Art for this week's episode was created by Dakota Brown. Our executive producer is Justin Gage. He's Aquarium Drunkard's founder, and I don't think you should miss his radio program, The Aquarium Drunkard Show, which airs on Sirius XMU, Channel 35, at 7 p.m. Pacific time each and every Wednesday. Transmissions is part of the TalkHouse podcast network. Visit the TalkHouse for more interviews, fascinating reads, and podcasts. Next week on Transmissions, and it is worth noting that we are winding the season down soon so that I can focus on Aquarium Drunkard's best uh, of the year list, Aquarium Drunkard's year in review 2023. But we've got some great shows lined up before we end things in November, and next week is one of my favorites that we've taped. It's a conversation with Lindsay Hicks and Moby. Be well in the meantime. This transmission is concluded. <laughs>